Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey folks, today's episode is brought to you by BetterHelp Online Counseling. Is there something that is interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your goals? My goal is to be the world's greatest literary podcaster, but I can't stay focused. The internet, I think I might be addicted to it. I might need assistance. BetterHelp Online Counseling will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. This is safe. This is private. This can be done online. It's convenient, and you can get started in less than 24 hours. This is not self-help. This is professional counseling. You can schedule a session on a weekly basis. You can talk by phone. You can talk via video. No uncomfortable waiting rooms. No driving across town in heavy traffic. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so they make it easy to change counselors if you need to at no additional cost. This is more affordable than traditional offline counseling, and financial aid is available to those who qualify. This service is available for clients worldwide. Talk to a licensed professional counselor and get the help you need. Whether you're struggling with depression, stress, anxiety, grief, self-esteem, relationship troubles, LGBTQ matters, you name it, anything you share is confidential. Please note, this is not a crisis line. Live a happier, healthier life and get started today. Best of all, as a listener of the Other People podcast, you get 10% off your first month by visiting betterhelp.com slash other PPL. That's betterhelp.com slash other PPL. Join over 800,000 people who are taking charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash other PPL. Betterhelp.com slash other PPL. All right? Okay. Okay, everybody, let's take a seat. It's going to take 20 minutes. We're going to try to concentrate. We're going to try to get home. We're going to get lost. We're going to get lost. We're going to Hello. What's going on, everybody? Welcome to The Other People Show. My name is Brad Listy, and I'm in Los Angeles, California. It's good to be with you. Thanks for tuning in. I have Rowan Hisayo Buchanan on the program today. Her novel, Starling Days, is available now from the Overlook Press. It is the official April pick of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. TheNervousBreakdown.com is my online culture magazine and literary community. It has its own monthly book club I interview all the book club authors on this podcast. For more on the Nervous Breakdown Book Club, just go to thenervousbreakdown.com. Today's episode is made possible by Northwestern University Press and their new, much-anticipated release, Love Child's Hotbed of Occasional Poetry by the poet Nikki Finney. This is a minglement of poems, observations, fictions, and treasured artifacts. It's Nikki Finney's first book since Head Off and Split, 
which won the National Book Award for Poetry. Listeners of this program get a 20% discount on Love Child's Hotbed of Occasional Poetry or any other title simply by using the promo code PPL20. That's PPL20. The offer is available at nupress.northwestern.edu. Go to nupress.northwestern.edu and get some books. Enter the promo code PPL20. Get a copy of Love Child's Hotbed of Occasional Poetry by Nikki Finney at nupress.northwestern.edu. Again, the promo code is PPL20. All right? So have I talked about the weighted blanket yet? Everything escapes my mind. That's the most exciting thing that's happened to me in my life recently is this weighted blanket that my wife got for her birthday, which should tell you something about my life these days. So I feel like special days, like birthdays, I guess especially for kids, but anybody, you know, during the pandemic, it's a little bit strange. It's like, what do we do? It's hard to get a cake. It's hard to, you can't go out. So I was relieved and excited when my wife told me that she wanted a weighted blanket for her birthday because uh, it's just nice to know what somebody wants and to not have to play some kind of guessing game. So for those of you who out there who have dogs, maybe you're familiar with a product called a Thundershirt. You ever, have you ever heard of this? They're like a Thundershirt's like a tight t-shirt that you put on an anxious dog. <laughs> and uh, we used to have one for our old uh, French bulldog, Walter. R.I.P. You put this thing on and supposedly it calms them down. But the, the reason I bring it up is because a weighted blanket, I feel like, performs a similar function for the restless sleeper. And best of all, uh, this is the kind of gift that benefits me, too, which got me uh, excited. It's not like, you know, my, my wife has the weighted blanket on one side of the bed and I'm on the other side of the bed left to my own devices. This blanket covers the whole bed. So... Uh, like we're both underneath this thing and it's like 20 pounds and it sort of pins you to the bed, <laughs> which sounds strange, but it, I have been sleeping like a champion. I'm honestly a little surprised by how well it's working. I don't know if it's all in my head. Or, you know, I don't know what it is, but I like the weighted blanket. My guest once again is Rowan Hisayo Buchanan. Her novel Starling Days is out there now from the Overlook Press. We spoke over the transom. Rowan uh, was in England where she lives. She lives in London, I believe, and I was here in Los Angeles. And it was just a delight to meet her and to talk with her about her life and her work. So let's get to it. This is Rowan Hisayo Buchanan, and her novel, One More Time, is called Starling Days. And so in some ways, this book opened with the idea of what happens if you love someone and they're having a battle with their brain. And what happens if you're having a battle with your brain and yet you're trying to hold on to this precious relationship in your life. And I think one of the reasons that that obsessed me so much is the ways in which we as a society often both talk about mental health as being important and use it as a way to dismiss people. You know, I, despite having had a mental health crisis myself, I have found myself saying, oh, that person's just crazy, when actually what I mean is that person's just irrational or they're behaving in a way that I think doesn't make sense. But it's 
in our language and it's something that I've tried very hard to push out of my vocabulary but it's taken a while and I still sometimes slip up but that formulation implies that person's story is not interesting because they're quotes crazy we don't have to pay attention we don't have to listen and to me as a novelist as a writer that story is very interesting the battle in your own brain is a battle and it's one worth taking time over and so I guess that's what began uh, my interest in the themes of the book. So you were saying um, earlier uh, that the the book always began with Mina, um, your protagonist, walking alone on the George Washington Bridge and being picked up by the police. That was the opening scene that you had in your mind. And I know from uh, prepping for this conversation that that came from um, you know, a personal experience that you had had as a teenager where you had been out on the bridge and uh, had been picked up, correct? Kind of. So that's sort of, in some ways, that's combining two things that happened. So when I was a teenager, um, I had a very bad crisis of depression which did cause me to end up hospitalized many 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 years later I was not as depressed actually but I was thinking about it I was remembering that time and I was about to make some very big transitions in my life different from those that Mina is making I was about to start a PhD program actually and I was very sad and so I decided to walk along George Washington Bridge not because I wanted to die but because I wanted to remember why I wanted to be alive which I don't know will sound illogical and I ended up being picked up and the person who collected me was my best friend and my best friend had to sign this piece of paper to say that they would take responsibility for me and I remember thinking at the time how strange that idea was, especially because I knew I was about to fly to Britain and there was no way that my friend could be responsible for me, but they signed anyway. And that moment stayed with me and I started to think, what if there was a way in which a character took that literally, took that form, literally decided, okay, I will take responsibility for this person. I will fix them. And I started to think, okay, what relationship would that be? And in the book, it's a marriage in some ways, because that is the traditional contract that where people say, I'm going to take care of someone else, not because it's the only one. And it became this, what if for me, what if I had been more desperate? What if there had been someone else, someone who felt they had a greater stake, a greater responsibility in solving this. And then these fictional characters emerged who are very different from me and from my friend. But I think as a fiction writer, my fiction often starts from a hypothetical. My first book um, started, Harmless Like You, started when my mother had a 
the moment where she lost her memory and I wondered if I was losing her and I started thinking what would have happened if she'd left me many years earlier because I knew she'd often wanted to leave or threatened to leave and I thought what would have had to be different for that to happen and a whole book came out of that in which none of the characters are my mother but it starts with this what if moment does that make sense yeah sure yeah absolutely and I like as just a logistical question I'm I'm actually curious are you not allowed to walk on the George Washington Bridge without the police like swooping in or is it well it's not a crime it's do they think that you are a danger to yourself or others? So I assume if you sounded very jolly and you were working, walking with your four best friends and they were driving by, they would go, oh, some people out for a night walk. But I think seeing a woman alone, they reacted differently. But it is to some level a judgment call because it's not a crime. It's just them making a judgment call about whether you are in control of your situation. Got it. Yeah, I think about the uh, the Golden Gate Bridge. I remember when I was writing my novel, um, like suicide figures into the novel that I published years ago, and I remember researching the Golden Gate Bridge, which has like a long history of jumpers, and I think they even made a documentary about it. But I want to say they have like undercover. Um, I don't know. I don't know if it's police or if it's aid workers, but they have people stationed on the bridge to try to like scope out people who might be a danger to themselves. And then there's also been this long-running debate about whether or not to put safety nets up to prevent people from jumping. And yet the people of San Francisco have so far, I think, voted it down because they don't want to mar the bridge. Like they would rather have like the beautiful, unadorned aesthetics of the bridge <laughs> than to have like some safety netting put up so that people can't do that. I don't know where, I, you know, I don't know. I guess like part of me is like, well... I guess in a free country, if people want to go up onto a bridge and leap off, I mean, but it also seems like it's probably the more humane thing to do to have some safety netting put up. Yeah. I mean, I think those things are always a difficult judgment call. The point at which you interfere with individual will is, I don't, there's not such a clear line sometimes right and you think but yeah i think george washington bridge and the time both since i was picked up and since i finished the novel or they have said that they will put up netting i believe but the police do drive back and forth i think there was an article about it um a little while ago hmm Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, 
a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. So, you know, one of the things that you're, one of the questions that your book brings up, uh, in me anyway, is this idea or this question of whether or not anyone can save someone else. And to what degree should we feel responsible for doing so? Like you were talking earlier about kind of dismissing somebody who is irrational and just calling them crazy, somebody who's very obviously struggling with a mental illness. And I can relate to that. I live in Los Angeles. I think in particular of our homeless problem where people in the streets are so obviously um, mentally ill. And I, I think there can be a feeling of overwhelm in the presence of somebody who's struggling uh, with something that seemingly large, but also unseen, you know, there's something very uh, mysterious about the inner workings of another person's brain. And I feel like sometimes that reflexive dismissal can come from overwhelm. Just, I don't know how to deal with this. I don't know where to even begin to try to unpack this person's anguish and to try to make things better. And I guess like in my head, I'm like, well, where do you start? And and like, what is the proper method for trying to really be there for somebody in a meaningful way that doesn't exacerbate the problem? Because that's also something I worry about. Like even with best (laughs) intentions, like I'm a very fallible person. I'm sure there would be scenarios in which I could screw things up. Yeah, I, I agree. It is overwhelming. And I think the less connected you are to a person, the more able we are to talk about the things we can do societally, institutionally, to make it so that the situation of other people is better. You know, I, a while ago, I remember reading a says about how there is a very high level of mental illness in the homeless population, but how that may be attributable to the conditions they're living in rather than the thing that made them homeless. And so there, you know, we can talk, have these big, very, very important social conversations. And then when it happens in our intimate family groups with our closest friends, there that conversation persists, How whether we should treat things using talking therapy, using medicine. But there is also, I believe, a need and a desire to treat those people as we always have as our friends as our lovers as our family members and to continue to relate to them on that level rather than to just say okay you're talking to me about this okay go talk to a helpline which can be necessary but is not always realistic and I think that's what I wanted to talk about in Oscar and Mina's marriage is Oscar is very, very overwhelmed. And he's someone who wants not to be, who is a list maker, who wants to find a solution, whether it be medical or 
geographic, he moves her to a new place. And when he can't, he doesn't know how to continue to share space with her, to be in the same apartment, to be in to be how to be in the marriage when she is in his eyes crazy. So yeah, I very much I'm aware of the overwhelm and while I didn't I didn't and don't know the answer to it for everybody I wish I did. I was interested in the novel in exploring it and exploring the boundaries of what these two characters felt able to give. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And I think like I think you just sort of alluded to maybe the deeper point, which is that all of these situations are so unique. Uh, you know, you can't really give a blanket uh, remedy that's going to be workable for each and every individual case. Like every single one is nuanced. Every single one has its own intricacies and maybe there just aren't any easy answers. And uh, I mean, I'm, I'm always like reflecting on personal experience. I'm thinking of how lately, even though I have two children and they're young-ish, like they're nine and five or nine and four, and uh, I'm already afraid of adolescence. <laughs> I'm starting just to like to be like, oh God, it's coming. Like something, you know, how, am I going to be okay doing this? Like I, it's been, you know, I've been able to be a serviceable father when they're young, but what happens when things get more, com you know, complicated? And so I will find myself in some of my lower moments, like Googling, like how to talk to teenagers and things like that. And one of these, uh, one of the stickier things that I read was that if you're dealing with a teenager who's suffering, and I guess the same could be true for anybody who's suffering, like something to say that won't hopefully muck things up is to say, is there anything that I could possibly say or do that won't make this worse? Because what I find is that if I'm in the presence of somebody who's suffering or struggling, I have a little bit of a mansplainer in me. Like, I don't think it's, I don't think there's like ill intent. It's not like the, hopefully the dark kind of mansplaining, like the, like super annoying kind, but it is annoying. And it's just me being anxious and not knowing what to do and wanting to try to like solve it. Do you know what I'm saying? And so I maybe, do. what's that? Oh, I was just saying, yeah, I do. That feels really familiar to me. Um, I think people who have looked for autobiography in the book have said, oh, are you Mina? Is Mina in some way related to you? And I sometimes feel like telling them, like all my characters, of course, but there's so much that Oscar does that despite the fact that I am not a Japanese beer import-exporter, and he is very different from me in many ways, is mine. And one of them is when I find a solution, I really want to give it to everyone I know. And sometimes that doesn't work. So, like, he's a list maker, and he says to his wife, like, what if you just made a list? What if that helped? And I sometimes hear myself doing that when I'm talking to, like, a friend, and then I have to sort of reel it back and go, okay, no, what will work for me won't necessarily work for you. Right. Yeah. Proselytizing. Like I can get that way. Like I recognize a lot of uh, myself and Oscar too. Like, you know, like I'm an exerciser, I'm a list maker. I get up early. I'm trying to like find solutions. And, uh, 
I don't know. I don't know. There's a lot of me in there and I, I guess some of it's good, but I don't love it when I get into that mode where I'm trying to fix somebody by having them do what I do. I, I, I guess like there's a real art and delicacy to being there for somebody who's struggling in a way that's genuinely helpful on their terms. And your book made me think a lot about that. Like, which hopefully is a good outcome. Is that an out? Is that one of the outcomes you were hoping for? <laughs> I, that is definitely a good outcome. That is an outcome that is very positive in my eyes. I think I hope that it would be a good story and I hoped it would be entertaining. And in that, I was making a point about what it's like to have depression or love someone who has depression. It was mostly to try to write a story that felt true for these people and not say this is how it is for everyone. But if someone had a parallel experience for it to be useful and for them to take what they need from it, which I guess is sort of a parallel to what we, you and I were just talking about now of not saying this is the be all and end all, but still trying to be of use. Yeah. And another thing that your book uh, has made me think a lot about is this issue of trying to fix oneself by changing one's geography. So Mina and Oscar leave New York after this George Washington bridge incident and they move to London. And I think the impetus or the primary impetus is to give Mina a change of scenery in hopes that it will help her write the ship. And I don't think in general that this works. I think this is almost like at this point, like a, it's almost like a common wisdom. Like you can't change, you have to change what's between your ears. You can't just change your, you know, where you're, where you happen to be living and, and think that it's going to somehow be a remedy. And yet sometimes I think that a person's environment can be contributing to, uh, a negative state of mind that they find themselves in or, a, you know, a difficult, uh, mental health experience like it's not always meaningless sometimes an environment can be a, a real serious contributing factor and so again i find myself like on this nice edge going like well when is it useful to change one's environment and um i guess i'm i'm thinking about like do you know is it should i stay in los angeles should i move to the country i think a lot of us during this pandemic are thinking about this like would i be better off in just like a nice bucolic small town with like some open space and some fresh air. Uh, does this relate, is this relatable at all? Yeah, I, I am definitely someone who feels very excited by the idea of moving. And that may be because I have family in different places. So I have family in New York and I have family in London and I have actually more family in Japan and China. Um, and so there's always a sense of things are happening where I'm not. And so it's perhaps something that I have passed down to my characters, but I think also in the book, there's something going on that is less about a desire for London and more a way of sheltering or hiding from your life. Oscar is the one who decides they should move, not Mina. I know you know this, but for any listener. And 
he does it because she's crying while she's trying to teach and she is in that precarious position of being an adjunct and she's going, I'm going to lose everything. And he's essentially hiding her by saying, okay, we're going to go on this work trip together. And he asks his father's his boss and he basically begs him to have a travel work assignment. And that's how they end up in London. And I think, although I would not advocate that anyone run from their life, there is sometimes a desire to step away from a situation that is overwhelming and attempt to regather yourself, which isn't entirely wrong, although it doesn't, I think, have to be as drastic as moving across an ocean. Yeah, I mean, these are like, I think like what you've done in your book is give yourself some really tough questions to chew on. So um, kudos for that. I mean, it's like, it's good fodder for a novel. And I think too, um, about the, and I hope this doesn't give anything away, but there is a closing note at the end of your book, which really struck me because it's a direct note from you, the author to the reader. It's not part of the fiction. Do you mind me talking about this? I don't know if you wanted it to be some kind of surprise. Yeah, we can talk about it. Um, but you briefly, but very poignantly, I think address the issue of mental illness and offer some words of encouragement uh, to readers who might be struggling. I have, I'm trying to think of when I've seen that before. I'm sure it exists. I don't know if there was some sort of precedent that you were drawing upon when you decided to do it, but I'm just interested to hear you talk a little bit about that decision and why you decided to you know, speak directly to readers at the end of the story. Well, I think I had talked to someone about the possibility of including helpline numbers at the end. And I remembered being young when I was a teenager and the internet existed, although it was less exciting and shiny than it is now. And I remember that whenever there was something about a difficult topic and then they said, oh, if you're suffering, call this number. Instead of feeling encouraged by it, I felt like they had wanted to talk about this difficult thing, but they didn't want me to be angry at them. And they wanted to, in some way, distance themselves from my vulnerability. And I thought about what I should do in this book. And part of me wanted to be in some way artistically pure and say this is the novel it is fiction I made it up you can take what you want from it your interpretation is your own and it is valid because it is your interpretation and I still believe that but I thought okay what if somebody reading this doesn't even see themselves in Mina but sees themselves in the worst, worst things that Oscar or Phoebe says to her or that she says to herself. And because they are in a vulnerable state, they read those messages onto themselves. Would I be comfortable letting them walk away with that or letting them walk away with that and a web address? And I thought... I. I wasn't, I wanted to write directly to those people and 
I know that on some level the note may be obvious to some people. Some people may read it and go, yes, we know. It's hard to live with mental illness. It is a fight. Okay. But I still wanted to be able to address those people. It felt like my responsibility was to the most vulnerable person reading my book. Hmm. No, I think that's noble. And I think too, like, I, I feel like maybe brevity, there's something wise in brevity, like it's powerful, it's direct, it's to the point. I relate to the idea of keeping it short and sweet though. Um, I could easily see myself rambling on and on. I think you, you did it all in about a page. Yeah, I, I, I think there is wonderful and useful nonfiction about uh, speaking directly to the readers about their circumstance. And if anybody was to write to me, I would be happy to either research or pass on to them. I'm thinking about Matt Haig's book, Reasons to Stay Alive. And I knew that it was too much to take that on as an end note. So <laughs> it is just an end note. Yes. Uh, well, so let's, let's, I want to hear more about you. Um, you sort of touched on your personal history and it sounds interesting. You've got family all over the world and, um, are you from England originally or? Um, yes, I was born in London. My father is British and my mother is half Japanese, half Chinese American. So I have family from a few places and although I grew up in the UK I moved to the US for college and then stayed there for grad school and for a little bit of time afterwards before moving back to the UK which you know I guess is another thing Oscar and I have in common but for different reasons <laughs> returning to Britain so were you raised in London yeah I was yeah I was raised in London and how did your your folks meet like if they like you said your mother's half Japanese half Chinese is she yeah, from um, England or so she grew up in New York on the Upper West Side but she was living in Cambridge Massachusetts and my father was studying there and they went to a party and met as one does at parties and apparently the first time they met my father was too drunk to remember that they'd met, so he reintroduced himself to her the second time, also at a party, <laughs> which was going quite well until his friend walked by and shoved some cake down his trousers. Um, but he still, he persisted and managed to get her to go out with him. So yeah, they met in America, but after my father's father died, he came back to England to help out his mother and my mom moved with him. Got it. Okay. And so you were raised in the city? Yes, I was raised in the city, mostly. <laughs> and did you always want to be a writer? Or was this something that came to you later? I always told stories and read. My family weren't very good at sports. Like, no one tossed a ball in the yard. We didn't watch the game on TV. So... Basically, what my parents did with us was read us stories and tell us stories and make up stories on long train journeys. But it wasn't something that I thought of as being something you could do professionally. 
I wanted to be an astronaut for a long time. Briefly, I think I wanted to be an investment banker because I thought those people are the most free people in the entire world. <laughs> this was when I was like a preteen. <laughs> and, um, Wait, I, what, what, why are they so free? Just because they're so rich? Essentially, as a child, I think I understood... I mean, when I was four, I wanted to be a dragon. So clearly I thought power was very important as a child. And then I understood that kings and presidents were important, but that they were always being reported on. And when my parents tried to explain newspaper stories to me and the forces of sort of finance behind the scenes of the world, I thought oh, those people are allowed to do whatever they want and no one knows who they are, which is a very simplistic view. But I think I just wanted to be free as a child. It wasn't even that I imagined that I would have Ferraris and Rolexes. It was that I thought no one could tell you what to do. And I suppose that's because all children, I think, are constantly surrounded by people telling them what to do and how to live their lives. But when I decided much later that I wanted to apply to grad school and I wanted to be a novelist, and it felt like a huge revelation to me in some ways, I was more scared to tell my parents I wanted to be a novelist than I was scared when I was like 15 and told them I was bisexual. That I was pretty sure they would accept. I was not sure that they would accept me being a novelist. And they said, yeah, yeah, we knew. And I was so mad at them. I said, what do you mean you knew? You knew. I didn't know. And I realized that stories had just always been the way I understood the world. Sad sadly for me, investment banking was not, in fact, how I understood the world. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's actually a fortunate outcome. I'm going to go out on a limb. Yeah, so, I, yeah, I was very lucky because I had professors who encouraged me to apply to grad school and who said, yes, you can do this. There are funded programs. This is a thing you can try to do. And I know that many people don't have those opportunities when they're young and no, or no one tells them that they exist. So where did you go to school? I went to Columbia. For undergrad? Yeah, for undergrad. And then I did my MFA at um, Wisconsin-Madison because A, it's a wonderful program, and B, there was a writer there whose work I really loved, Laurie Moore, and I wanted the chance to learn from her. Oh, so you got to study with Laurie, but, but didn't she, that she then went on to Vanderbilt though, right? So I know, like, we, were her last, we were her last year. Oh, you were, okay. So can you talk a little bit about that experience? I mean, she's very funny and very intimidating, and she speaks exactly like the narrator of one of her stories and that's not to say she is the characters but you know the slightly ironic slightly distanced tone that her stories have yeah that's how she speaks and actually that was in some ways a huge revelation to me as a writer this will sound obvious but that how that that voice was so much hers and the stories are the 
most refined, most polished, most crafted versions of that voice, but it's still her voice. And so attempting to borrow it or steal it is useless. It belongs to her. And, you know, we can all obviously learn lessons from other writers, but that you were basically stuck with your own voice and you just had to make the best of it that you could. And did she, was she good at critique? Like she was actually like reading and critiquing your work? Yeah, she was. She was um, my thesis reader, actually. And she was great. I think there are sort of different types of writing teacher, all of whom are useful. And I've had teachers who were wonderful at saying, what if you moved this clause? How would that change things? What if we change the pacing of this particular paragraph? Laurie would say things like, what if we change the gender of your protagonist? What if part of the story took place in China? And at first, it would always feel outrageous, because, you know, you're in grad school, you've worked really hard to be there, you've polished the story, it's probably the fifth draft of the story, because you don't want to be embarrassed in front of your classmates. So to have a professor go, what if you changed a huge portion of the entire premise? You know, there's a part of you that immediately kicks back against it. But a lot of those edits were very useful and I took some of them. And even the ones I didn't take, it encouraged me to remember that basically until the story is published, all of it, is up for grabs. You can change direction at any point. And I, that was a very useful lesson to learn. And so what were you working on as your thesis? Was it your first novel or? It was my first novel. So she taught a workshop for which I had in short stories. And then um, I showed her my novel and, and her and another professor, my novel for my thesis. And then it went on to become like a, a thing. Yeah, it went on to published. become Harmless Like You and my first book, which I thought very surprised and happy about. Yeah, we'll talk. Uh, yeah, how did that happen? So you, you finish your thesis, you finish Harmless Like You in school or shortly thereafter, and then you... Well, I finished a version of it as my thesis. You know, it was a full draft. I'd edited it a few times. It had an entirely different title. And I thought, okay, now next step is to get an agent because that is what my professors had told me. And so I went out into the world. I actually taught high school, well, secondary school in the UK, but equivalent to high school English um, to, to teenagers. And then I was awarded this fellowship from the Asian American Writers Workshop. So I did that for a while so I moved back to New York in order to do it and then I got a call from my agent offering to represent me and I'd sent out to a couple of other people before it felt like so many I think it was about 12 13 I'm not sure of the exact number and it took about a year to hear back and then I heard back from two agents at once because that's how the world works and I ended up going with my agent because she talked about the book with such passion. And when she suggested edits, they were edits that I wanted to make, that I was excited to make. And that was really what I wanted at that point. 
Hmm. Who is your agent, may I ask? Of course. Um, her name is Lucy Luck, which is an amazing name and I think makes her sound like a superhero. And she's she's actually a British agent. It was I got a call from an American agent and, a, and my agent from Lucy. The American agent was also wonderful. It was just that she wanted to send out the book immediately and I didn't think it was ready. And I ended up going with Lucy. And so, which is quite good because I live in the UK now. So we're now closer. <laughs> but yeah, and she's taking great care of me. Well, okay. So then the book goes out. Uh, did it like once you made all those changes, did the sales process go pretty quickly? Yeah, so it did actually. Lucy gave me some edits and I did them over the summer. And then we sent out, I think in November. And I remember asking her, like, at what point do I start crying? Because I have high self esteem like that. And <laughs> she was like, no, Rowan, do not cry. Crying is not, not what we're going to do. Uh, and I was like, okay, but seriously, when do I start crying? And she said, fine, if, if in February we haven't heard, then you can start crying. And I was very, very lucky. I actually had my book go to auction in the UK um, with six publishers. So that happened fairly quickly because I think two publishers had offered to preempt. I'm not sure if that's the American term. But yeah, it is. And so then we were able to have an auction and it it was bought by Scepter in the UK who were part of Hachette and they sold it to Norton and it was published as Homeless Like You. Wow. Okay. And, uh, and then did you uh, get like a multi-book deal or was it just for that one? Yeah. Um, so in Britain, it was a two book deal and in America, it was a one book deal. And you had and you had uh, Starling Days like in the works as this was going out into the world, or did you come up with it like kind of? I absolutely did not have it in the works. I had the idea for a different book that I spent quite some time writing and editing, and it wasn't working. To be completely frank, I worked on Edward and it didn't. It didn't sit right. And I ended up shoving it to Lucy, who, bless her, said, this novel isn't going to work. Because I'd send everything, like, I know this isn't working, what can I just fix it? And she's like, and she got back to me, and she's like, you can't really fix it. It's two novels. And they're having a fight within this one novel to see which will be more important. And you need to either pick one and give it its own book, or you need to write something else. And I ended up, writing something else and I remember that we had that conversation and then that very day I was supposed to go to a festival which I did go to and take questions from the audience like how do you write a novel and I remember giving the best answers that I could the most useful answers that I could all the while somewhere in the back of my heart thinking I don't know I don't know how you do anything <laughs> right um, um but... so okay so you had two novels I'm interested in this conversation with Lucy and in her diagnosis of the problem it sounds like you agreed with her or you were at a point where you were just willing to take good advice from a trusted advisor but <laughs> rather than pick one of the novels inside of that flawed effort you decided to go off in a different direction entirely correct 
Yes. But it was related. So that book, that book was in many ways a satire. It was about a startup watch company run by this really rich kid. And the second novel, I guess, that was having a fight with it is it was told from two perspectives and one of the perspectives was the rich kid and the other was his employee who before the book started, her brother had killed himself and she hadn't been paying attention to him when it happened. And so she's trying to unpick that and work that through and she decides that her boss is suicidal. And so the book was in many ways about love and caretaking and all the things that Starling Days is about. But because it had begun as a satire and her boss is a slightly spoiled and ridiculous person, it didn't quite work. I was going for the Shakespearean, you know, humor and darkness, but the balance wasn't working. And so when I stepped away from it and thought about what I wanted to do, I thought about the parts of that book, that failed book, that felt really important to me, the parts that made me run out of the bath to my computer to add a few more sentences. And they were all the parts of this relationship with her brother. And I ended up making it a very different book. Mina and Oscar are both alive at the beginning of the book, for example. <laughs> but it was those questions that were still whirling in my head. Yeah, you know, I I share with you like a, like a thematic concern with um, self destruction. Uh, I've, I don't know if you've lost anybody to suicide in your in your life, but I have. Uh, I've also lost a close friend to a drug overdose, which is its own kind of self destruction. And then, like more broadly speaking, I uh, I can't help but feel sometimes that the entire human species seems bent on self destruction. <laughs> and I guess the point that I'm trying to kind of driving at is that. I find a, I find your concern with it totally relatable. I find anyone's concern with it totally relatable. And I'm almost baffled by anyone who isn't thinking along these lines. Like, doesn't it, it sure does seem to me like the species wants out in some ways. And it's troubling to me. <laughs> I, I would hope that we would have a, you know, a saner approach, but do you know what I'm talking about? I do. And I think what, I struggle to understand most about what it is to be human is that we, so many of us do seem to have <laughs> destructive urges and yet such capacity for joy and creation and how those two things can sit side by side in both the species and the individual. I have a friend who was going through a very bad time with 
mania and depression and who's and during a depressive period um i think it was their therapist told them fine go kill yourself if you don't laugh for a month if you don't smile for an entire month at any point you can just go die fine you're morally absolved and I think that's a very risky thing for any therapist to say, and I would not prescribe it. But I only know this because he told me about it, and he said uh, he couldn't help it. You know, 15 days in, he laughed. And not everything was better. Everything that he was fighting was still there. All the destruction was still there. But he laughed. And I think... It may be impossible to reconcile those two things, but it's part of what makes being alive interesting. Well, yeah, I mean, nothing lasts, right? I mean, even even somebody who's in the throes of a really deep depression, it sounds like, I mean, can't make it two weeks without having a laugh. So... Like hopefully the ratio improves. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. I think I think for my friend at least it did. But yeah, I I do know what you mean. I I have had people in my life leave by suicide and I've had people very close to me not leave but almost. And yeah, I still I wish I had answers. <laughs> Yeah, it's a tough kind. I mean, I can I, don't, I can only speak from my own experience, but I think I think it's probably pretty common. It's a tough kind of grief. Like suicide grief is is particularly tough just because there's so much confusion in it, and the only person with the answers is gone. Like at least when somebody dies of uh, you know a disease, we have like a biological or a medical you know. I guess somebody who dies of suicide has uh, the disease of depression or. Um, but it's, I don't know, it left me feeling like uh, full of questions and, you know, they're completely unresolvable and you just have to sort of learn to live with that. Yeah, I think it's difficult because I do believe that mental illness is illness, but it's much easier for me to imagine that someone I love, if they lost their foot, is still the same person. Whereas if their emotions change, if the way they speak change, if the way they hold themselves in the world changes, oddly, even though none of that is visible in the same way as a foot, it's much closer to my idea of who they are. I'm not religious. I don't believe in a, a soul, but there is an idea of something like a soul and a central self that seems to change in a way that it's hard to see what's going on as just a disease, as just something outside, as there's this real version of them and this disease that's happened. And I mean, that's one of the things that I was really wrestling with as I was writing the book, is just to what extent is are these characters, <laughs> their diagnoses? And I think the reason I wrote fiction about it is because that's something I'm trying to figure out in the world for myself, for people I know who are suffering, what is the limit of you? What are the decisions that you're making as you? And what are the decisions that are being made by this illness? 
Well, I think about, I think about that in relation to what we were talking about earlier about wanting to be um, of of use to people who might be struggling, uh, to whom I'm close, like a family member or a friend or, you know, some somewhere down the line if I'm with somebody and I'm trying to be of use, like, uh, like how much of it, how much of it is them and, and how much of it is the result of behavior, you know, like, I don't mean to point, uh, I don't mean to point fingers or place blame, but I'm just saying that sometimes you can modify behavior and it can affect how you feel one way or the other. And, uh, other times there's something neurochemically going on that needs to be addressed uh, through things like medication or talk therapy or both, or do you see what I'm saying? Like, and, and sometimes somebody just feels like shit because they're just eating, they're eating terrible food. They're not exercising. <laughs> I don't know. Do you, do you understand what I'm getting at? Like, I, I, I do. I do completely. I, one of the reasons for the note at the end of the book is cause I really didn't want people to walk away from that book and think I was telling them that there was one way to treat it, to treat mental illness, because the book starts with Mina's mental health medication stopping working, which is something that happened to someone I love very much. And I remember having, being on the outside and having no way of understanding what was going on because everything I'd encountered up until that point either said medication is the answer, it solved everything, it made everything better, or said um, it's bullshit and it's mind control and it's you just need to exercise and have a healthy diet and that's how you should manage it. And no one had told me that a person could be on medication since they were for almost a decade. Yeah, it was almost a decade and have it really help and be incredibly useful and allow that person to write beautifully, to make really good work, to be an athlete. And then it could all go away and they would have to find either a new medication or another set of solutions. And... So I, I wrote it into the book because I think there's something about me as a writer that I want to write a, the stories I needed in the past. But I think it just reminded me of how there isn't an answer that there are people I know who met, they just they took a pill and it really just it fixed everything for them. And actually that friend, the friend who that happened to, now just does diet and exercise and that works for them it's so hard to know what the right answer is which yeah it's always like a, it's always like things. a bes- it's like a bespoke situation you know mm-hmm. everybody's got to find their own little system and uh i i you know if medication is part of it like who am i to judge you know it's kind of my attitude but um i also because i'm i'm I always do this to myself like i can play the devil's advocate all day long i do think sometimes there's a a tendency for doctors to overprescribe these things that feels true. I don't know how true it is, but I don't know. You know, I don't know how to how to get fully to the bottom of it. One thing that strikes me is that if I think about the world and the state of the world, and then I think about mental illness or people struggling with uh, depression or anxiety, which I think are the two big ones of the age that we live in, 
maybe any age, but it seems it seems especially so now. It almost seems like a like abnormal. Like if you're habituated and well adjusted to this, like like what's going on? Do you know what I'm saying? Like I, I get that there is like a there is such a thing as like a true like severe neurochemical imbalance or disruption. Um, but I think for a human being who's paying attention and trying to live in the world with some heart and uh, how could you not be a little bit blue? You know, like it seems kind of uh, healthy in a way almost. I like I don't know if you've ever been around somebody who's like super well adjusted and like like kind of neurochemically wired for like ultra happiness. Kind of freaks me out to be honest. I, I'm like, holy <laughs> shit, what is this? <laughs> I I don't know. This is maybe it says more about me than anyone I've encountered. But I think when I meet those people, I think, oh, there's something you're secretly sad about that you're either not telling yourself or you're not telling me. Um, but that may, I may be entirely wrong. They may yeah. go about their days in pure, pure bliss. No, I, I I wrestle with this as well. And I think like it's either that they're, I mean, I guess, yeah, they're really sad about something. But I also feel like sometimes there is a level of like competitive happiness. Like there feels like there's a strain of competition in it. Like nothing is going to get me down. Like nothing is ever wrong or, you know. And then there's also, I think, a, a, a kind of anger in it that I detect though. Maybe I'm just projecting. Like I find that there's something almost menacing about it. <laughs> yeah, I, I do. I do see what you mean. And I, I don't know. I was thinking about what you were saying earlier about sort of being just at the moment. And I was thinking that, you know, I, I told you at the beginning of this interview that I was hospitalized for trying to kill myself when I was 15 and clearly or maybe not clearly, but it seems to me now that that was an out-of-control reaction. But I was at a school where no one talked to me for a year because they thought I was a witch. <laughs> there was there was some... Wait, they thought you were a witch? It was... This is a very silly, in retrospect, as an adult story. I tried to kill myself when I was 15, but when I started that school when I was 11 there was a rumor that I was a witch and that I was going to raise Hitler from the dead and that if you talk to me your entire family would die um it was an odd time being an 11 year old girl and the rumor faded after about a year but I continued not to be the most happy person at that school and what school was this <laughs> British old girl school and um and I think to this day when I've you know I've tried to live my life in a way that's responsible and in control and I'm sure at times I've shouted at my partner too much when I've been upset by something but generally speaking I think what comes out of me into the world is what I would like but I know that even if an emotion feels too big, that doesn't mean it's not based in something real. And I think that's why I struggle with the people who are just like pure happiness, count your blessings people. I mean, I'm all for counting your blessings. Be grateful, be appreciative, 
count your blessings, but also you can be angry about injustice at the same time or politically angry at the same time as you're grateful that you have your dog. We don't just have to count our blessings. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, no, I get this totally. Like, I, why do people always want to make things into a binary? It's not an either or. Like, you can do both. I, I have this argument in different contexts all the time. Like, uh, I'll say something you know, to a friend or family member about, you know, some sort of social injustice or something that I've read in the news. And they'll just be like, well, I'm just going to be focusing on what's positive and I'm not going to let myself be overtaken by that. And I'm like, wait a minute, you're implying that I'm completely overtaken by this and I'm in the fetal position and this is all that I think about. Like, I actually am just talking to you about this for a moment because it's something that's on my mind. But I contain multitudes. I've got all sorts of other things going on, you know, like it just had, it presumes like this narrowness and smallness. And it also presumes that like one can't possibly juggle multiple things. I, I don't know. It just, it, it, uh, it boggles me. It bothers me. I've tried to, I've tried to express this, but I just don't, I think some people just don't want to deal. Yeah. I, I edited an anthology of Asian American Asian diaspora writers and for about a year after that people were like so you're really into being Asian into <laughs> the like injustices out to Asian people and I'm like well yes I am but also sometimes I'm not thinking about that at all <laughs> that it's not that it's so people want to say okay that's what you're about that you're about this one idea or this one feeling where it's you know it's possible to be angry about trump or angry about racism towards asian americans and also like very excited about your organic almond butter right which by the way i'm incredibly excited about my organic almond butter because it's almost <laughs> impossible to get during this pandemic <laughs> yeah um so did you did you come to any conclusions or insights that were not previously there that are really concrete uh, as a result of, of working through this novel? Like, you know, we talked earlier about how you started with these difficult questions. I mean, I think it's fair to ask if if you came to any decent answers or, you know, a portion of, of an answer that you feel good about. Yeah. With all of the caveats of Everything we've been talking about, about, everyone needing to find their own individual solution. One of the things I realized as I was writing this book from Mina's perspective and from Oscar's perspective is that Oscar is trying to be strong for Mina and this, he's trying to be kind and strong and then when it's overwhelming he's angry and strong and that he thinks that that is what is required as a response to what he sees as her weakness and to what he may feel as weakness in himself and one of the things I realized that I believed by finishing the end of the book is that while 
it is important not to blame someone who's suffering for the fact that they're suffering may frighten you or may overwhelm you. No one is helped by the, quote, sane person holding up their sanity as an impermeable tower and that dividing people between the sane and the insane is to me not very useful and that to say in a particular moment or a person needs more help or that a person needs medication, that's fine, but that by holding oneself up as the rational insane person, you may just be pushing the suffering person to the greater wilderness and you may make it impossible to ask for help yourself. And I think Oscar is a man and not all, not all men <laughs> struggle to talk about their emotions, but I think society very much tells them not to, um, that their emotions are either scary or a sign of weakness and that that is a particular danger. I think. So reflecting on the experience you had personally when you were a teenager, where you struggled with mental health in a pretty serious way, can you can you recall anything, any communication that you received from friends or family members that was healthy or helpful? And can you, or, and, or can you recall something that you wish somebody would have done that they did not do? Because I think for people trying to help somebody, it's like, well, I want to help, but like, well, what would work? And I, you know, we talked a little bit about this earlier, but I'm just curious if in your own personal experience, you have insight there. Okay. For me personally, I think what didn't work was either people trying to find a very, fast solution or disappearing entirely from my life because they were scared by it. I think the thing that I wanted most and that when I received it meant the most was just people being there and listening. My mother... <laughs> for months afterwards because the school asked me to leave for the reason that I had ended up hospitalized and and they felt unable to take responsibility for a child in that mental state fair enough so I was mostly at home and my mother slept in the same bed as me for months and in some ways I don't really remember <laughs> anything <laughs> she said to me during that time. But I remember, you know, being 15 and having pink hair eventually and, you know, thinking I was so cool. You know, I would never have said, oh, mommy, I want you to sleep in my bed. But her just being there and 
sitting with me through it really helped. And I think in some ways I was lucky because I was a child. I wouldn't have thought of myself as a child at 15, but I was. And I was a child who had a parent who didn't know the answers, but was trying to show me she was there. And I think it can be hard for adults to find that person or persons who can just be there for them, if not literally in their bed when they go to sleep at night, (laughs) but who will listen to them and be with them as they work their journey through, as they go to their darkest place and hopefully come out of their darkest place. Because I think if you're fighting something huge and scary inside of yourself, you may not expect anyone else to solve it for you, but the idea that they'll just leave is terrifying. Yeah. No, I think that that is the, that's kind of the answer I was hoping for. Um, because it aligns with like, I think my instinct, which is that, or or like it's instinct born of experience. Like I think Mm -hmm. I'm always better when I err on the side of silence when it comes to difficult situations like that. But also with uh, combining that silence with presence, it's not like silence and absence, but it's like be there for somebody, sit next to them, bear witness, but maybe don't react so heavily to the impulse to want to try to like, jabber at them and fix everything and give them, you know, two hours worth of advice. It, it comes from a good place, but it never works. (laughs) And sometimes I think it just makes things worse, you know, or often I think it makes things worse because I don't know what the hell I'm talking about, you know? And I think it can be uncomfortable for the person who wants to be there for somebody to live inside that not knowing, you know, it's a, it's a weird combination of, of, uh, feelings to be like, I really want to help. I love you so much. I know you're struggling. I want to fix this. But at the same time, be like, I have no idea how to fix this. So let's just sit here together. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Um, yeah. So I guess that's going to be how I hopefully will handle my children's adolescence. I'm going to be <laughs> quiet, but there. <laughs> <laughs> Oh. We're all going to co-sleep, I think, uh, in, well into uh, <laughs> <laughs> Co-sleep through the pandemic. Yes, we're co-sleeping. That's it. Um, actually, I should say the pandemic, I think a lot of families feel this way. I've had this conversation. I mean, some of it has to do with privilege. Um, you know, I, like a lot of people are like in very difficult, immediate, urgent, oh. bad situations. Like we are not quite there, but I think having... Uh, I don't know, having time to sort of slow down and be together has been in a weird way nice. Like that's been one of the aspects of it or like a silver lining of it. Yeah, I. it's really hard, I think, in this pandemic to talk about the things, the joys that people have found in a way that doesn't negate that people are dying, that essential care workers are taking huge risks. and But I think yelling at the people who make sourdough isn't going to save anybody's lives. And so it's, uh, but I have found it very interesting to watch how people are finding ways to have those conversations about, well, 
actually being with my family is great. Maybe that's something we could take into the future. Maybe we could have more flexible working hours so that parents can spend more time with their children. And that's a lesson we can learn without putting too much of a smiley face on the pandemic at the same time. So I'm really glad that you brought up that you get to spend time with your family and that that's positive because I hope that we can take some of those things in, into the future. No, I agree completely. And I think like, you know, again, it goes back to this whole issue of, of uh, binary thinking. Like I, I, I'm obviously uh, sensitive to the fact that people are losing their lives and are desperately ill and that, you know, all the, all the negative stuff is obviously front of mind, but it's also uh, a radical time to be alive uh, on like a Nick from uh, an economic viewpoint, like capitalism has essentially ground to a halt as much as it can. Uh, I know we have essential services and everything, but I've never seen anything like this. I don't think anybody's ever seen anything like this. And so, you know, it feels in some ways like a grand experiment, like people are having to invent new modes of being and, people have time to look inward maybe to a degree that they didn't previously and to reevaluate things. And, um, it's not all bad. And I think it's okay to say that. I mean, you know, I think the situation's complicated and, uh, you know, it's, it's also very dark. So I think it's forgivable to want to try to be like looking for like a ray of sunlight. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I have so enjoyed talking with you and, I congratulate you on the publication of uh, Starling Days uh, over here in the States. And uh, I guess I got to ask, like, are you working on anything? I feel like there are a million, like maybe even more books being written right now. It feels like either people are completely frozen and locked up and they can't do any writing. Or I think the more, it seems like the more uh, likely scenario is that people are just like, well, I got to stay inside. I might as well be working on something. And I'm curious if that's been the case with you. I feel like hearing from other people, all the novelists I know are saying they're locked up and all the people who have never had time to write their novels are saying, oh, this is my moment. So maybe we'll get a lot of exciting debut novels. Uh, well, everyone who's been having it as their job for a while is curled up and frozen. I think for me, it's somewhere in between. I'm doing a lot of reading, I found. It sort of, I'm plunging myself into other people's stories. I had then have a manuscript that I'm working on and I'm going quite slowly but it's still the thing I think about as I go to sleep at night so it's not given up on me yet and what about the book that you abandoned before you started working on Starling Days where the one that had the two novels like wrestling with each other the one that you know Lucy Luck by the way that is an awesome name um yeah I don't know how you could possibly not go with an agent named Lucy Luck if she offers I know. to represent she's, you. She's actually divorced, but she kept her husband's last name because she was like, it's the only good thing I got from that marriage. It's mine now. <laughs> uh, there you go. So I'm just curious to know, like, have you ever thought of taking one of those two wrestling novels, extracting it from the other, and, and uh, seeing it through? I guess you kind of did that with Starling Days, but not exactly. Or is that just stuff in the past? Is that like water under the bridge? I think that book itself is probably water under the bridge. But 
I spent a lot, a lot of time reading about watch mechanics. So who knows? Maybe some watch factoids are in the future for me, though I don't know when that will be. And this new one, you said it's like in in the pretty early stages. Yeah, it's in. I have just yeah, I have like ten thousand, twenty thousand, depending on how skeptical I am of the pages, um, words left left not left written um and so there's a lot that could change because i'm not a outliner i'm someone who figures out the plot of the book as i'm writing and so i usually find that at least one character changes at least one major plot element is different than i thought it would be so who knows what this book will look like when it's finally done do you think you're making it hard on yourself by not doing an outline? I ask this for myself as well. Like, wouldn't it just be, I mean, I know you can deviate from the outline once you write it, but I'm kind of, I'm kind of like you. I'm more of like the intuitive, like I'll find my way through the thing. But sometimes I'm like, why don't I just outline this? Why don't I sit down and put some good thought into what it's going to look like and save myself the agony? Yeah. There are writers whose work I think is amazing and feels completely fluid. Orhan Pamuk, who won the Nobel Prize for Literature, is a big outliner. And they can work with outlines. When I write an outline, and I try to write to it, it just ends up feeling really forced. I think the problem is, if I write an outline before I know my characters, they end up feeling really flat to me. Because I don't know why they would make those choices other than that it would be traumatic and I need to write into them to under into their speech patterns into their thoughts in order to understand what they would do or why they would do it so I can't but I I would love to I don't think even I would love to because it was, would be efficient I would love to because I I'm very jealous of those big diagrams my outliner friends draw with different colored markers and <laughs> things pinned to different points. Like it just looks so much more cinematic than me sitting at my computer deleting sentences. Right? Yeah, exactly. You get to you get to make like charts and graphs and decorate your walls. <laughs> yeah, sounds amazing. Um, do you do any like screenwriting work or anything like that? Do you have any aspirations in that direction? I haven't done any screenwriting so far. I mean, if someone wanted to turn my fiction into TV or a movie, I would be very excited because when I write, I see what's happening. And I always thought that that would make me a good screenwriter, but I, a close friend of mine is a playwright and a screenwriter. And I've realized that it's the opposite because I want to just describe everything I can see in my head. And he's like, no, Rowan, just dialogue. You just have to do dialogue. <laughs> um, so at the moment, I have not screenwritten anything, but who knows what the future will hold. Maybe I will get my head around writing only dialogue and having to trust someone else to decide how the light is falling. Right, right, right. Well, um, you know, however it goes, I certainly wish you luck. I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. I guess it's what... You're in you're in the UK, so it's it's evening there, right? Yeah, it's nine thirty. Okay. Well, I appreciate you. You know, I don't know how early you go to bed or whatever, but I appreciate you making time. Well, thank you for talking to me and for having such real 
human questions and talking about your life because I think sometimes you know when you're being interviewed it it's hard to have a conversation because the other person is just asking you questions and so hearing about your life and your kids and the decisions you're trying to make was really lovely oh well thank you yeah I you know that's sort of what I do I feel like uh I always want the show to be a conversation between two people um as opposed to a more like traditional journalistic interview with like your standard list of questions or um, any kind of standard format. And I think the upside of that is that it allows, it's a kind of improvisation. And so it allows for unexpected moments to happen. The downside uh, is that my listeners are subjected to like me talking about (laughs) my kids every episode. (laughs) Um, so you really have to be willing to put up with me, uh, I guess, is the answer. But um, I don't know. That's just the way that I've always done it. And uh, I, I, I really appreciate you, uh, you know. Yeah, I think a... it works beautifully. I was listening to Deb Olin Onfrith, um when you did a little while ago. And I loved hearing you two bounce off about veganism. It was wonderful. So, yeah. Cool. cool. Seems like a great way of doing it. Well, I appreciate it. And uh, again, I wish you well. Stay safe uh, in England. And uh, best of luck on the mysterious, unnamed 10 to 20,000 word novel that you're working on. (laughs) Thank you. Stay safe. Um, And it was just really lovely to talk to you. Okay, folks, there you have it. That is Rowan Hisayo Buchanan. Her novel is called Starling Days. It's available now from the Overlook Press. It was the official April pick of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. Starling Days by Rowan Hisayo Buchanan. You can follow uh, Rowan on Twitter at RowanHLB. She's also on Instagram. Her website is RowanHisayo.com. Go get your copy of Starling Days immediately available now from the overlook press if you would like to support this program you can do that at patreon.com slash other ppl pod that's patreon.com slash other ppl pod tip your server every episode of this show is available for free if you have something to say if you would like to write to me the email address is letters at other Thanks again to Northwestern University Press for sponsoring the program. Remember to go get your copy of Love Child's Hotbed of Occasional Poetry by Nikki Finney. Get 20% off with the uh, promo code PPL20 at nupress.northwestern.edu. This podcast has its own official app, the Other People with Brad Listy app. It, too, is free. Go get the app. It's a great way to listen. So, uh, next time on the program, I have Danielle Trissoni, author of a novel uh, called The Ancestor. She also is the author of the internationally best-selling uh, Angelology books. It's like Angelology and Angelopolis, I think. Danielle Trissoni, also the author of uh, some critically acclaimed memoirs, The Fortress and uh, Falling Through the Earth. So, very gifted author multi-talented she is going to be on the program next up thank you for tuning in if you're feeling anxious maybe consider getting a weighted blanket 
what the hell you got to lose, right? Uh, wait a minute, honey, I can't move. <laughs>